Well, this is the last episode of Adventure Rider Radio for 2023. And for me, it feels like the year just went by way too fast. It makes me think of my mom, and she passed away almost 30 years ago now. But when I was young, I can remember her telling me that the older she got, that time seemed to zip by much faster. That every year that went by seemed to be faster than the year before it. And at the time I was young, I didn't really understand what she meant. I'm assuming she's talking about some unique experience she's having. Honestly, I didn't give it much thought. Of course, as I grew older, it became apparent to me that, as it does for most of us, that indeed the seasons don't seem to last as long as they did when I was younger. I mean, when I was in elementary school, summer lasted a lifetime. I mean, you you almost got sick of it by the time school started again. Almost. And then fall went on forever. And being in Canada, winter was, I don't know, at least two years. That's what it felt like anyway. We had so much time, it seemed, back then. But as we get older, the years click by quicker. Before you know it, another year's gone by, another birthday. It's as if we're on some sort of runaway train with no chance of slowing down. And every day seems to be short of hours, you know. Now, in case you're wondering where I'm going with this and what motorcycle riding has to do with it, just give me some latitude here. I'm coming to a point. That feeling that time speeds up as we age, we aren't alone. It's well documented by psychologists that as we age, our perception of time speeds up for most of us. Not at the same rate, but it speeds up. Now, although there's much to be understood about this phenomenon, science tells us right now that there are a number of factors, including aging brains, processing speed slowing down, and an ever-expanding network of neurons and connections. You know, as you learn more, your brain uh, expands its neuron connections, keeping this very simple. Interestingly, though, This all points to the number of images that our brain is processing. So bear with me here. Let's take our eyes, for instance. Our eyes have this this rapid movement called saccades, which uh, means that our eyes sort of flick back and forth from side to side as they scan and make a new image. So if you can imagine, if this were a camera we were talking about, because the eyes are very similar to a camera, if we slow the scan rate, fewer saccades, fewer scans, you would have fewer images to make a film with right? So it would either appear a jerky film, you know, you can imagine if you only have so many images in the minute that it goes through, you can actually see them flicking from one image to the next. Or if you pull, like our brain does, you pull these images together, keep them the same distance apart, make the film smooth, then you have a shorter film. You see, that's what our brain is doing, making fewer mental images and making a shorter film, at least perceived by us. When we look back in our brain, we look back at our memory, it feels like everything went by very, very quick because there's so few images being recorded. Now, some of the reasons that the researchers point to are the aging brains that I talked about, that ever-expanding network, the the spider-like network of neurons and connections. We can't change that. But the other is stimuli, stimulating the brain. You see, when we're young, everything is new. And therefore, the brain catalogs everything in detail. But as we age, much of what we do in life is repetitive. You know, waking up, brushing your teeth, making breakfast, going to work, you get the idea. While the brain doesn't want to waste memory or time or compute cycles or however it thinks, I have no idea, but it just stops recording those things that are already recorded that it no longer needs to record. Remember the camera analogy, less frames being recorded. I mean, in the brain's defense, there's no reason to remember intimately each time you've brushed your teeth, right? I mean, you've done it so many times, you you don't have to think about it. And that's the whole point. That has its advantages as as well. So those repetitive things just get deleted or, or don't get recorded to begin with. Bing, gone, just like that. However, if you were to reach for your toothbrush and found a baby snake wrapped around the handle, that would be burned into your memory. That would be a story to tell. Why? Because it never happens. And if it did, you would need to remember it. I mean, on an evolutionary scale, it could be dangerous or it could be something helpful that you would need to remember, like finding fruit on a tree that you hadn't noticed before. You know, in the evolution of our our brain or us as humans, the brain catalogs those because they're important either to get food or or to keep us safe. It's different from your life routine. I'm sure you've had those moments when you're driving for a while in a place that you are or a route that you always do. And all of a sudden you think back and you go, I do not remember going through any of those lights or passing any of those things or driving down that road because it's routine. The brain already knows it. It can function without you thinking about it in the moment and without you remembering it. So if this is the case, the brain's ignoring whatever it feels is redundant, 
then basically a good portion of our lives goes unremembered. So when you think back of what you did over this past year, there's little to remember because our brain decided it wasn't worth remembering. Anyway, so no recordings, no memory, fewer frames, faster film, the time zips by. Okay, this is what I'm coming to. So how do we force our brain to remember? How do we force our brain to remember things so that we can slow down time in our mind? Well, we can't do anything about the neurons and the network or that it has to go through, but we can force our brain to wake up and take notice of our life by stimulating it. How do we stimulate our brains? By doing new things, exploring. I mean, how many times have you heard people on this show who know the excitement, know the rewards of motorcycle travel and motorcycle adventure say, get outside your comfort zone? Because getting outside your comfort zone is what will make your brain wake up, take notice, snap some pictures, build some memories, and slow down our mind's eye of time. And there feels like your, your life is longer. It feels like you're getting more out of it. So this could be the mantra for 2024. Call it a New Year's resolution if you want to. However, I avoid that like the plague because I think it's something that, uh, that, that to me is, is something that's almost dumped the next day. But however you want to do it, use your motorcycle to slow time down. Find new routes. Explore new possibilities. Get out of your comfort zone and experience new things and stop letting your life slip away. What we have for you today is a recording we did back in 2016. I think you're going to enjoy the story and the message. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Dustin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Morris. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregor W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tax. Zoe Cano. Graham Hoskins. Joe Russ. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Bernard Smith. Nathan Millward. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. It's that time of year that many of us are, are looking to make our New Year's resolutions. Of course, it's a tradition in many countries that come that time of year when the old year is finally finishing up and the new year is about to be rung in that we set these goals for ourselves for self-improvement or maybe personal gain, personal growth, that sort of thing. But usually these resolutions that we set, they come with a price, pain, like having to cut out food, for instance, that you love so that you can lose weight or the effort of maybe working out so you become fitter or maybe cutting out the favorite coffee shop stop that you normally do or maybe your Friday night movie so you can save some money. All good goals all with some pain attached to them. So is it any wonder that we sort of forget about our resolutions almost as soon as the year begins? Instead of setting goals that you see as sacrificial or painful, how about setting a win-win type of goal, a goal that's achievable yet fun to do? So the question is, how do we go about setting goals like this? Well, we looked at a study that was done at the University of Bristol by Professor Richard Wiseman. Wiseman did a study on New Year's resolutions and in that study, only 12% of the people, 12% actually achieved their goals. Now, it's notable that most of the goals in the study included weight loss, cutting back on alcohol consumption, or quitting smoking. Now, from my perspective, all these types of goals have one common denominator. That's 
that they require some sort of pain to achieve the goal. And of course, the long vision is how much better off you would be once you achieve those things. You know, the weight loss, the not drinking as much, being smoke-free, all of that is the best, of course, in the long term. But I know from experience that long-term goal, that long-term payoff often isn't enough to push me through the pain process. So if you want to have a goal that you can look forward to, feel good about, yet still have an element of challenge, your bike may hold the answer. How about a goal that combines personal growth with adventure, sort of the win-win goal that I was talking about? Imagine doing some adventure with your motorcycle. Now, it doesn't have to be around the world or even to the next state or province for that matter. It could be two days. It could be 200 days. The numbers, time, and distance mean little. What is important is that you look at your comfort zone and then plan something that pushes it just a little bit. I mean, I think it needs to be achievable and believable that you can accomplish it. Now, a goal like that is fun to plan, thrilling to do, and in the end, you've achieved some personal growth and built lasting memories as well. So this year, why not make a fun New Year's resolution? Make a goal to take a trip that you always wanted to do or or do whatever it takes to make sure that you've got a worthy goal. And then make sure you realize that goal. Like really make a plan, share with friends, focus on the rewards, you know, the actual trip itself, and then just get going on it. How about a resolution to do at least one trip, one adventure, one outing that stretches your personal comfort zone, yet rewards you with experience, a melding sort of 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 personal growth and motorcycle adventure. We've heard some inspiring stories over this past year on Adventure Rider Radio, riders who just decided to travel for, well, whatever reason. And in any way they could do it, any way they could afford or find to do it, they just did it. And not one person that we interviewed came back and said they didn't get anything out of it. And in this episode, we have a story to share with you that isn't exactly a New Year's resolution per se, but it's a goal that Derek Mansfield set for himself to travel to Mongolia because... Well, that's what adventure riders do. Um, I'd always wanted to go to Mongolia. Previously, I went out to uh, the kind of Iran Iraq border and stuff like that. But I knew that real motorcycle adventurers went to Mongolia. So I thought, that's it. I, too, have to go to Mongolia. So, um, you know, I bought the the Moto Guzzi Stelvio, especially for this journey. I just had to go to Mongolia. That was it. That was the only reason. Well, it's not not quite that, you know, but it was a pretty egotistical reason, if you like. So uh, uh, we bought the bike on the way to Mongolia. Every real motorcyclist has to go to Mongolia. What put that in your head? Is that a long way round thing? Uh, kind of. I think probably so, yes. <laughs> because it's remote, right? I mean, or, or somehow it's it's undeveloped, it's sort of pure. Is that the idea? No, it's just that's where everyone else went to. So I thought <laughs> I should go there too. <laughs> I mean, there are some dumb reasons for going to dumb places, Jim, and I think, you know, basically... Yeah, I I met this guy in a car park. This was, uh, I think, the previous year. And um, I I was there with a sort of, you know, black leather jacket and a ripped T-shirt and all this kind of rock and roll nonsense on a cruiser. And this chap was kind of really buttoned up in this kind of smart gray textiles, and he had a BMW and he got on it. And I thought, thought, wow, that's so cool. And I think he actually, he had his uh, uh, phone working in his helmet and things. And I thought... I want to be one of them. That's that's what modern adventure man does. So I thought, yes, that's for me. And uh, 
uh, so that I've bought a motorcycle. I actually bought some of these. No, I bought wax. You know, textile is a tad too far for me. So it was a wax jacket. And then and then I knew that with a wax jacket and a big sit-up and big uh, motorcycle that I was I was a motorcycle adventurer. And where to go? Well, it had to be in Mongolia. It was just, you know, everybody knows that, surely. And this is when you're in your 60s. Uh, I was, yeah, I was 60. Five, sixty-six. Well, the reason I ask that is because it's nice to know that, you know, we don't change that much because what you're <laughs> describing could be a 30-year-old's thought process. <laughs> well, funny enough, I, uh, I, I look around uh, Facebook all the time to find out people who are older than me. And, and one of my heroes is uh, Simon Gandolfi, who I think is now 80 and still going through India on a, on a post bike or something like that. I, I just have to love the man. And anyone else I can find who's older than me who's out there riding, I will write to them and say, hooray. Well, I think one could deduce from that then it's motorcycling that keeps you young and keeps you alive. Oh, well, I, I, I think so. One thing that has, uh, that has happened is I've changed bikes now. I have a much smaller bike because the, the Stelvio, although I loved it, and, you know, when I first uh, started riding, it was as if I was from a, uh, a, a parallel universe, really. <clears throat> the, uh, but I keep dropping it, and I must have dropped it now in about 19 countries. And it's okay when you drop it. I haven't been hurt, or not too badly. I'll tell you some more about that at the moment. But um, uh, I have to wait for people to pick it up because it's too heavy for me. So eventually, um, this year, uh, I bought, uh, uh, still a motor good, see, I bought a, a V7 Cafe which I've now converted into uh, a potential round-the-world bike. So tell us about this trip, London to Mongolia. You said you got on the ferry and off you go. Okay, so um, I'd ridden across Europe uh, uh, before. And um, what I tried to do, or hitherto, I hadn't really enjoyed uh, Western Europe too much. It was, uh, first of all, it's very expensive. Um, Secondly, the cultural differences, um, or there are more cultural similarities, if you like, than there are uh, differences. And I like to get to uh, to Poland at least, because for me, that's where uh, my traveling begins. So on this particular journey, um, I got to Poland, and uh, I mean, it was kind of mild stuff. I was just riding across Poland. It took a couple of days, and I stayed in some nice places and things. Not a whole lot to, uh, to go on about that. But my, my fear, my big nemesis, um, is a city called Lviv, which is just over the Polish border um, in Ukraine. And I've been to this city a couple of times before, and it's beautiful. It's a, a medieval city, and you kind of start in the middle, and you can see all the different kind of uh, um, conquerors who've been there. So it, it starts around the center of medieval, and then you get the kind of uh, the Polish, and you get the Hungarians and everyone else has ever been. And, and it all reflects itself in all this different architecture. The main thing is, is at the center of the city um, with this beautiful opera house, um, the center of the city is covered in cobbles. Now, as a motorcyclist, you'll know that cobbles and rain are never very good. And the pre- t- previous couple of times I've been through there, um, it was very slippery, very slidey, and I hated it. So I sat on the outside of... Uh, uh, I sat at the side of the road and a, a biker uh, pulled up. They'll always pull up if you're in Eastern Europe. You just sit there and someone will arrive. Anyway, he was on a very fine yellow cruiser. And I said to him in my finest English, how do I get round the city? And he said, it's easy. There's a circle road. Go down here, turn right, just keep going. Simple. So about 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, I found myself right into the center of the city on these bloody cobbles and it was raining. And uh, I was wearing kind of rain gear. I was very, very hot. And uh, the lights went green. I, I pulled across. And the next thing I knew was I was underneath an enormous bus. So I was laying there in the road, finding difficulty in, uh, in breathing. And someone at the, uh, uh, the back of the crowd, a woman, she said, it's okay, we're bikers. And they kind of pushed their way through the crowd. They, they got the bike up. It was about three or four of them. They pushed the bike off the, uh, off the road onto the pavement. They, they uh, bribed the police to go away. They bribed the bus driver to go away because I'm a foreigner, therefore it was my fault. 
And within about 10 minutes, they got a, um, a small van to turn up and they put the bike on the back of that. Off it went to be repaired. And I was standing there with my mouth open. I just, oh, an ambulance arrived. And uh, uh, in the ambulance, there were kind of three people, some blankets, but that was it. There were no uh, painkillers or, you know, technical equipment. And they said, we're off to the hospital. And I said, I'm very sorry, I'm not. I'm going to get off and have a fact because that's really what I need. So uh, they said, well, you must sign here. So I signed there and the ambulance went away as well. And then these guys who had uh, picked me up, they took me to their apartment because um, I had a couple of cracked ribs. So it was a bit difficult kind of breathing and walking and stuff. So they took me to their apartment. And uh, I stayed there for uh, um, about five days before uh, they went off on a trip of their own. And that night and every other night, they had a party. And all the local bikers came around to see this English playing on the couch with broken <laughs> ribs. So they thought it was all very funny. And then um, at the end of that, when I uh, uh, they went off on their trip, and I, I was moved to the place where the guy was uh, repairing the bike, it's, you know, it's a, his workshop. And he'd, he'd straightened the wheels out. I think they were a bit bent. A lot of stuff with the electrics and a few other things. And at the end of it, I said to him, how much is this? And he said, Dadek, send me a postcard from Mongolia. And that was it. Wow. And he'd been working on the thing for a week. Just stunning, really. And that, that kind of stuff happens all the time, in my experience. Really does. That happens sort of east of Germany. Yeah. It, you know, Ger France... And Germany, they're, they're, they're good people, but they've, they know we've all got insurance. From Poland onwards, no one has insurance, so everyone helps each other. It's pretty incredible. We were just talking about this on our Raw show, mm -hmm. about the, the camaraderie, biker camaraderie. Oh, sure. Eastern Europe, that it is so strong, you know, implying that, you know, the Western world sort of needs to go back to this, that helping each other, because we're very independent. That's the whole thing with Western society is we all want to be independent. Yeah. And I think it, there's independence, Jim, but there's also isolation, you know, and it's a kind of, and, and what I prefer is, uh, is uh, interdependence. That kind of works for me. I think they come hand in hand, don't they? Because when you become independent, you can, and I've said this before, you can go into it, move into a neighborhood and want nothing to do with your neighbors, nothing to do with the community. You know, you just happen to want that house and you don't need anyone. You get your electricity and your internet and everything else. Yeah. And you can pay for it all. You know, that, that sort of the, the days of yesteryear when everyone need each other to survive uh, have sort of fallen by the wayside. Now, if you have the cash, you, you know, you can do it. But because of that, you are isolated. You do become, you know, an island to itself. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things I learned in my 12-step program is uh, it used to be so hard for me. But these days I can, uh, I can go anywhere and I can put my hand out and smile and say, hello, my name's Derek. That used to be so hard so hard and what i discovered was that it's hard for everyone else too so if you put your hand out smile and say hello my name is people wow they relax so quickly even in foreign languages association for you here cold wet smelly uncomfortable those are words that other riders use about their feet riders that have not yet experienced the incredible warmth of the world's best cold weather socks for riding pearly's possum socks pearly's possum socks are made of a unique blend of possum fur and merino wool and knitted into a sock meant specifically and directly for riding motorcycles resulting in the warmest, most supple, durable sock that has ever been. And those natural fibers, the possum fur, the merino wool, they wick away moisture from your skin. Those natural fibers cannot be synthesized by man, period. Those natural fibers also have lanolin, naturally, in them that refuses to let bacteria grow. So, no stink. I'm wearing my pearly possum socks right now, not because I'm riding, obviously, but because they feel great and they keep my feet warm on this cool floor. I use them for riding, but I also use them for almost every other outdoor activity in all four seasons. If I'm wearing boots, you can bet I'm wearing Pearly's possum socks. That's because I know the value of the best cold weather socks money can buy. Pearly's possum socks is the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio. 
because I am so taken by these things. Pearly'spossumsocks.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'spossumsocks.com. Well, you're probably going to need a large bookshelf to hold all the motorcycle books you can find at RoadDogPub.com. Road Dog Pub specializes in motorcycle books. And they actually, no. I think Road Dog Pub really specializes in great motorcycle stories. That's what it's all about. Finding and publishing great motorcycle stories. And that's what Road Dog Pub does. The reason they do that is because the owner of Road Dog Pub is a rider just like you and I, Mike Fitterling. Mike loves to ride and rides at every chance he can and is passionate about what he does for our community in publishing these great motorcycle stories. And they have new books all the time. So whether it's for you to escape into someone's epic adventure and live through them vicariously while maybe you sip your coffee or brandy in your comfortable chair this winter, or whether maybe it's a book to inspire a friend or a family member, check out RoadDogPub.com. They have new releases all the time. As I said, recently they've had Ron Davis with another book, Rubber Side Down, Steve Sherrill's book, Motorcycles, Minotaurs, and Banjos, and A Year in Motion from the publisher himself, Mike Fitterling. You can buy Road Dog Pubs at all fine bookstores, or you can sort of skip that and go right to the publisher at RoadDogPub.com. And when you do, make sure you let them know you heard them here at Adventure Rider Radio, RoadDogPub.com. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs that are all designed to improve your control by adding leverage and connection through properly engineered designs that maintain or even improve factory ergonomics in regard to your shifter and your rear brake pedal. Now, this isn't done by accident. It's done using IMS Products' 47 years of experience, much of that on the racetrack. Bottom line is that IMS Products foot pegs will improve your skills by giving you better tools. And don't underestimate just how important wider, properly engineered foot pegs are and what they will do for you as a rider. IMS Products foot pegs are made in the USA. They're warrantied for life. And as you can imagine, the only way you can offer a warranty like that is to offer great products to begin with. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. So after you sat in the apartment for a while and, and met everyone and, and you're back on your bike? Yeah, then I'm off to uh, um, uh, to Kiev um, where I've got my kind of office and stuff like that. And I hung there for uh, um, about five days, still getting, you know, more repaired. Um, there's nothing you can do, as you probably know, for broken ribs. You just have to wait for them to uh, get together. Um, and then uh, I went off uh, across the border into uh, into Russia. And actually, I met some um, some amazing people there. Uh, I think the place was called uh, uh, Voronezh. And I was staying with uh, um, four young people who uh, lived in their family's dacha, um, which is, you know, a kind of uh, um, a small cottage way out in the, uh, in the boondocks. And this particular dacha didn't have uh, any electricity, didn't have any running water, nothing. And uh, basically, they were making, uh, they had their own uh, um, herbs, <laughs> specialist herbs that they grew there. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, okay, you know, my, my herbal days are, uh, are long behind me. But um, we were going out to this place and it was, uh, it was dark. And uh, we, one of the roads was closed off. So the other guy, the young guy on the motorbike, he said, okay, I'll find the way. Off he went. And he came back in about uh, about 20 minutes later and he said, okay, Derek, follow me. They can walk, he said, pointing to uh, the rest of the crew. And uh, so I followed him and it was, you know, it was dark. We were going through uh, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, pebble uh, roads, which were about three feet below the, um, uh, if you like, the uh, uh, the field line. And uh, they were very narrow and he was kind of zooming through these things. Anyway. My courage was really screwed up. I, I got to the end of it, and I thought, thank God for that. It was only about 20 minutes, but I'm pretty fearful around this stuff. Anyway, he got off, and I said, did you have to go that fast? He said, I wasn't going fast. 
And, and I said, well, you were for me. He said, oh, I fell off the first time I came down here. Also, he said, I'm stoned, so it didn't hurt. I thought, <laughs> <"Jeez."> <laughs> cool, dude. But, you know. Anyway, I, I stayed there with them for uh, three or four days. The, the reason I had to leave in the end is that when they went, went and got water, these are beautiful young people, they went off to the lake with all their kind of water-carrying stuff. But, but they'd invented this kind of uh, um, routine for themselves that when they went to get water, they had to go into the lake naked. So in they went, and they were beautiful people. They got all their kind of water full up and stuff like that. Now, I'm 65, right? And I'm not showing my body to anyone, dude. There's just no way it's going to happen. So, so I thought after three or four days, that's fine. You know, thank you very much. And so they... Uh, they rode with me to the uh, the edge of their city, and then they they kind of sent me on the way, waving and things like that. Anyway, I kind of careered across uh, um, Russia from one point to another. I, I met uh, at a petrol station. I met a priest and another couple of guys, all on motorbikes, all three on motorbikes. And uh, one of the guys gave me a bullet. He said, "This is from uh, Chechnya. It's a lucky bullet." So I said, "Okay, yeah, I'll go along with that." So I, I put this on my keyring and didn't think too much more of it. I carried on then for uh, about another, oh, 2,000 kilometers, maybe more. Russia is such a huge place, you know. I'd been riding for um, three weeks, and the people I, I stayed with, um, they took me into the town, and they said, look, see this little church, this little white church? And I said, yes. They said, this is the very center of Russia. And I said, but I've been riding for three weeks, and I've only got halfway. Jeez, it's just huge. It's actually, Russia is, I think, about... Um, 8,000 miles across. You know, it's just so impossibly big. Anyway, I was in Novosibirsk, which is this town which is halfway. I was planning to go to uh, um, Irkutsk and then turn right into Mongolia, but my ribs were just too painful. I couldn't do it. So I turned right um, at Novosibirsk and I went down towards uh, the Altai Mountains. And uh, I was stuck in a road in a place, I think it's called Bonol. And the reason I was stuck there is because there was this huge uh, cavalcade of uh, motorcyclists came through. And uh, I think there's probably about a thousand of them on, on their bikes. And they went into and they're obviously having a big rally. And I thought, well, that looks much more fun than what I'm having here. So I'm going to follow them. So I followed them in there. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a fantastic time, really. I mean, these guys are crazy. Uh, first thing they did was to dig holes in which they put the back wheels of their motorcycles so the motorcycles are kind of pointed up in the air and then they sit on them going broom broom I, well I don't you know it's kind of what they do <laughs> and they had a another game which was um, like 10 pin bowling but what happened was there were 10 beer bottles um, put about 20 meters away and then uh, there were some uh, tarpaulins down and they covered the tarpaulins in, um, in water and then they took one person and four of them would throw the one person down the tarpaulin to knock over the uh, uh, the beer bottles at the end of it, which is okay if you like tempting bowling that way. And and then there was the kind of rock and roll. But and the but the, the main thing was the the people. You know, there were I think there are about four or five of us, if you like, travellers who pitched up at this thing. And and everyone looked after us. You know, we were fed, we were given drink, and da 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 da. Anyway. Um, I was uh, um, I was just sitting down to kind of relax in one of the one of the kind of uh, uh, tents, and um, a guy kind of came up to me and he looked out of the side of his eye, and he said, he said, "You know my brother," and I thought, "Oh, we've got a problem here because the man's been drinking and da 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 da." da. And uh, I said, "Well, um, that's very nice. I'm I'm sure probably yes. And uh, what's his name?" So he kind of went through. Anyway, what actually happened in the end was that. Um, this guy was the brother of the man who had given me the bullet from Chechnya. It was just that close. And then when I was leaving to go through the Altai, um, they gave me uh, uh, names and phone numbers of various other kind of uh, motorcycle clubs all the way through Russia. So it was, you know, if I had a problem anywhere, it's the same in Ukraine. It's like anywhere. If I've got a problem, I've got a whole raft of numbers that I can just phone up and someone will arrive and help. You know, it's just, just like that. It's amazing. When you're traveling along, though, like you mentioned seeing all these bikes go by, if you were to see that in North America, that could be intimidating. You know, I mean, most people, I think, would just keep on going. I think you don't want to go near that. I'm curious, are you always putting yourself out to um, 
like sort of pushing the limit, you know, inviting yourself into something. You mentioned putting out your hand and, and introducing yourself. Are you always doing that, looking to meet people? Oh, sure. Sure. And, and so my, the rest of the question is, does it work? I mean, are there times where you sort of get slapped in the face? Never. Never, ever, ever. And I guess what I'm asking, why I'm asking is because uh, I'm wondering you know, why it's something we're so afraid of when we go somewhere, you know, we're all like that. We, we, um, we tend to not want to get involved. We tend to, to not want to, um, uh, put ourselves out, you know, feel uncomfortable, I guess is what it is, especially when it comes to strangers. I, I think actually, Jim, you know, when, when people meet me or see me, I'm not very big. I'm, uh, uh, what, five foot seven, I think. Um, I've got silver hair. I have a kind of uh, a short beard. Generally speaking, I'm wearing a brown leather jacket, a pair of jeans, and some and some English brogue boots. And I'd look non-threatening. So when I put out my hand and smile, people react that way backwards. But what I don't ever do, Jim, I don't go near uh, um, places with alcohol. I don't go near bars and stuff like that because I know where trouble begins. You know, if if you're in a bar, um, it just needs someone who's thinking, who gets a bit jealous and da-da-da-da-da. You know, they've had a few drinks and they mm. think, well, look at him, I'll, you know, I'll have a go at him. And and I've just seen it happen. You yeah. know, it doesn't have to be abroad. It happens, you know, in, in your own country as well. So I just leave uh, places with, with alcohol a long, 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 long way behind. So when you're saying you, you just stopped at this, you met all these people, they're having uh, some sort of mm. get-together with the bikes. Is there not a bunch of drinking going on there? Yeah, yeah, but I'm in bed before it gets heavy. Oh, I see. Plus, plus, plus. Also, um, I'm a kind of uh, uh, um, I'm everyone's granddad. All of a sudden, mm. you know, they're all kind of looking after me. Don't, don't forget that uh, in uh, in Russian places like that, the um, uh, people die a lot earlier. You know, to see someone who's over sixty on a motorcycle is a bit of a miracle, really. So you got to know when to sort of push your way in or, or when to, you know, be bold and then also know when to leave. Sure. I don't, I don't think it's so much being bold. What I think it is, is uh, if my reason for traveling is meeting people, if I'm going to meet people, it means I have to do it somehow. And the easiest way to do that is to put my hand out and smile and say hello. So the word, rather than say be bold, it would be be open and friendly. Uh, that's exactly it. Well put. That's exactly it. Yep. So you carried on? Yep. So I, I went through the Altai Mountains. Off I went to um, uh, Mongolia, which was uh, a couple of hundred kilometers up the road. And what happens there, there's this uh, um, small town, the name escapes me, it begins with an A, um, a very small town. And uh, there's the Russian border and then there's the Mongolian border. I got there on whatever day it was, but it happened to be a public holiday, so the uh, the border was closed. So I had to sleep uh, in uh, on the floor in a cafe. Um, got across the border, that was all right, and then there's kind of twenty kilometres of um, of tarmac, which is fine, and then you get to these uh, uh, the final kind of Russian fence, and they open up the fence, and these huge iron gates are going creak, 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 creak. It opens up, and there is in front of you nothing. On Google Maps, there's a motorway. In front of you, there is nothing. And I just kind of thought, ah. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, we got the bike started, and off we went. And it was kind of, um, it was just shingled, you know, the, the motorcyclist's worst nightmare. So I'm plodding along on this shingle. And um, I'm looking down at the uh, the step and thinking, well, that looks a lot safer than this does. But I just didn't have the courage to do it because if I was going to go down on the step, it meant I could never get back up to this kind of shingle road thing because it was so, so steep. So I just hung in there. I did about 200 kilometers, I guess. And uh, I hadn't seen a soul. I'd, I'd seen a couple of yaks, but I hadn't seen a person anywhere. I'd seen a couple of uh, yurts out in the distance. Anyway, 200 kilometers. And sitting on the side of the road was this, uh, was this motorcycle and this young guy on, on, sitting on top of it with a, a huge smile. So I pulled up and I smiled at him and I said, can I get coffee around here somewhere? That's just something he'd ask. So he looked at me, carried on smiling, and then he said, follow me. So off we went across the step at a speed I didn't really want to go at for about 30 kilometers. 
and we turned up at his family's uh, his family's yurt. Huge, great place, and they welcomed me. And uh, um, I was to stay there the night, which was very nice. They turfed one of the brothers out of the bed in the yurt, so I uh, actually slept in the yurt. <laughs> and um, they uh, it was quite interesting because they have a concrete part made out of concrete blocks, really, which is where they live in the uh, in the winter months. And there was a, a fire in there which was uh, for which they were obviously using the dung from the animals. Um, and on top was the uh, uh, the babushka. Uh, the mother was uh, creating this exquisite dish called plov. And uh, it was all made in a huge bowl, and it was just kind of rice when I was looking at it. Anyway, so it was then served as a family meal inside the yurt. And the yurt is amazing. It's kind of creamy gray on the outside canvas and then on the inside you have all this ornate woodwork and there are mirrors hanging there and um and kind of filigreed furniture all sorts of wonderful stuff really anyway so we're having the family meal setting there and the plough has changed now it's not rice it is the classic testicles <sighs> and they were not nice i have to tell you um chewy I think pretty tasteless, and, and I, I pushed them around the plate for a long time. So you know, push, push, push. It wasn't really. No, I didn't uh, get along with those very much. But I had taken with me from England some marmite, so we mixed the marmite with the plov, and everyone was delighted with the new taste. They stole the marmite. Actually, they took it from me before I left. I can't blame them, but but there we are. <laughs> so, anyway, next. So I'm curious, yeah. you sort of glazed over that pretty darn quick. You sit there and you see what they're serving up and they're serving up this, this testicle dish, which, yeah. which I think most people have probably seen in long way round. Yeah. And, yeah. and here you are thinking you're going to have to do the same thing. What's running through your head? Are you just thinking, okay, well, I'll just go ahead and eat them? Well, I was thinking that uh, the guy in, um, uh, in long way round, the producer, can't remember his name at the moment, but I thought he's such a girl because he just kind of, chewed it a little bit and then spat it out. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> going to do that. No way. These people are hosting me with their finest food. Russ Melkin. So, uh, so yeah, that's right. Russ. Mm. Yeah. Big girl, Russ. Anyway, I, uh, so I, I chewed it and ate it and, uh, I can't remember exactly how many I ate, but the last couple were, were pushed around the plate because I wasn't going to go that far. <laughs> but, but with, with, uh, with Marmite, it's a, a much welcome addition. I can tell you. <laughs> Probably many would argue that Marmite is right up there with the testicles. Yeah, possibly so, possibly so, possibly so. There we are. You're traveling to Mongolia. Where are you going anyway? Uh, well, the funny thing was actually, Jim, at that point, I got up the next morning and I thought to myself, you know, I still got these broken ribs. I was in a lot of pain. And I thought, you know, getting to Mongolia was the objective. Um, that was the goal. I didn't actually want to die here. So I turned around and, and, and went back, you know. So my whole Mongolian trip was 200 kilometers or 250 kilometers in and 250 kilometers going back out again. It was enough, frankly. And, you know, I was alone, 66 or whatever I was, this enormous bike that kept falling over. And I just thought, no, nah, I ain't going to, you know, I, I don't really need to prove anymore. I've done enough. I think the cynical observer may say that, well, so you rode 500 kilometers in a country with no roads to speak of just to eat testicles. Well, yes. It seems yes, an I'm odd not. objective. I, I must think about that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's quite an incredible trip, and, and you returned home after that. Yeah, I, I, um, I came back through Kazakhstan, actually, and in Kazakhstan, um, it's... It's an amazing place, really, truly amazing country, amazing people too. It's about uh, not as big as Russia, but I think it's about 4,000 miles across. And um, uh, what they do in uh, Kazakhstan, when they're repairing the roads, um, they, they bulldoze a, a one parallel and they close off the tarmac, if you like. And, and having bulldozed it, they then backfill it with sand and uh, shingle, which ain't great for we motorcyclists. And uh, the other thing there is they have this uh, terrible wind that sweeps uh, all the way across the steppe um, and caused a lot of uh, uh, dust storms. And I got caught in one of these while I was on this road being repaired. And uh, a four by four pulled in front of me. So what I did naturally was to uh, uh, put my brake on in sand. Everyone does that, right? And the next thing I knew, I was laying on my back 
looking up at these cars going past and there was sort of this brown moon faces looking down to see if I was dead, you know. So I kind of <laughs> smiled a bit. Anyway, a couple of people uh, picked me up and uh, helped me sort out the bike. And uh, they took the uh, uh, the luggage, which had been ripped off, to uh, um, a motel, which was about, I suppose, another 20 kilometers. And I managed to uh, spur up my courage and uh, ride to get there. So I got to the motel, and I got the uh, the bags back on the uh, the bike. I'd cracked my ankle, by the way, but I wasn't aware of it because the, the adrenaline was still running at this particular point. And uh, the manager came out and he said, I, I think you should stay here the night after this accident. And I said, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm English. I can do this. So I got on the bike and I started up and I rode 50 meters and fell off again. So he came up and said, I think you should stay here the night. So I said, yes, I think I should too. So I, I lay there that night with... Uh, uh, my ankle wrapped up in kind of ice cubes and stuff like that. And uh, the next day, a lot of uh, a lot of pain and still onto these uh, these terrible, terrible roads. But, uh, you know, you ask the gods for the road to, uh, for a bit of help and you uh, you get on and you do it, don't you? Because, you know, you have no choice. You can't get beamed up anymore. So, um, and that was kind of Kazakhstan, which was fabulous. Um, and then I went back through uh, through Russia. And went on TV. I was a TV star there for three and a half minutes. Why? Just because you were traveling by motorcycle? Yeah, absolutely. And I had to bump into someone who was a, um, a TV producer working for the local uh, station. So they said, will you come on? And I said, of course. So that's, that's, what, that's why, Jim, you have to take some decent clothes with you when you're on these rides. Because you never know when you're going to be on TV. You know? It's, listen, I, I have this... Uh, this fabulous uh, friend who um, you, you must you must have her on the show actually. When she was twenty two, this is back in the eighties, I think. She uh, uh, she rode all the way across uh, South America and then went to Australia and stuff like that. So I said to her, "What was the most important thing you you took with you, Catherine?" And she said, uh, "She said my ball gown and high heeled shoes." I said, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so I've, I've decided that now I'm getting into tango. But uh, on my next trip, I shall take a pair of uh, leather sole shoes so that I can tango on the uh, en route. It's very important. Of course. You know. I'm surprised you're still riding, uh, you know, after a trip like <laughs> that and, and, and going down, breaking your ribs and then the, the ankle and the, the whole thing. It, it's, I think it could be enough to make somebody say, you know what? It's too much. No, not, no, never. Not really. Uh, it, you get up in the morning and what do you want to do? Get on your motorcycle and ride somewhere, yeah. right? So that's kind of how it is, and that's that's what I like doing. And and if I can get on my motorcycle, ride somewhere, and meet someone, perhaps that I've been, I haven't met before, and then listen to their story, wow, what a day, you know. And if I'm doing that in a in a country five thousand miles away from my own, then wow, what a way to live. While I was Derek Mansfield, Derek is now in his late 70s. It's got to be an inspiration to most of us. He's also the author of a book called Notes from the Road, Volume 4. You can find out more about Derek by visiting his website, www.derekmansfield.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, a little bit 
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Now, at this point, I normally want to thank our producer, Elizabeth Martin, my wife, which, of course, I will. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. But I I have a bunch of other people, because it's the last episode for the year, a bunch of other people I'd like to mention. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not everyone who's been on the shows, but I just want to mention some people that have really stood out and have helped shape Adventure Rider Radio and Raw this year. I want to start with Clinton Smout. Clinton is on our Rider Skills program, as I'm sure you know. He's passionate about teaching. He is always ready to teach and he's got a great sense of humor to go along with it. So thank you very much, Clinton. Bill Jagru and, and Chris Birch, they've both shared invaluable knowledge through Rider Skills on Adventure Rider Radio. Spencer Conway and Kathy Nell, we often refer to Spencer as the real deal motorcycle uh, adventure traveler. If there's trouble, Spencer usually finds it. We love hearing about that. Mickness and Elsabi Olivier, who have shared so much of their expertise on Adventure Rider Radio and Raw. Thank you. I mean, the list goes on. Jess and Greg Stone, Tim and Marissa Nottier, uh, Travis and Chantel Gill, Lisa and Simon Thomas, Chad Horton and Rose Padilla, and of course, the godfather of motorcycle travel, Ted Simon. And each and every guest that we've had on that have shared their knowledge and their stories with our listeners, thank you so much. You guys have all inspired us. So many people have been inspired by listening to what you do and the stories of of what you've done. And let's not forget the core group of Raw hosts. We've got Adventure Rider Radio Raw on there. We have Michelle Lampfair, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Brian Ricks, Grant Johnson, and Sam Manicom. Thank you so much to you who show up every single month to record from all different corners in the world. I mean, there's been lots of times, like the last recording, Michelle was on a cruise ship off the coast of Africa. So thank you all so much for what you do. And thank you to our advertisers. We're honored to be partnered with so many great advertisers, not only great products, but great people. So thank you very much for that. And most of all, to you for listening to the show. Because if you weren't listening to Adventure Rider Radio and Raw, well, we just wouldn't be doing it. It's it's as simple as that. And, and it, we have a lot of fun doing this. It's definitely a lot of work, but there is far more enjoyment with putting this show together for you. So thank you so much for being there and listening to the show. Elizabeth and I wish you the most incredible 2024. So whatever it is you're dreaming about doing, find a way to get out there and make it happen. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll talk to you next year. Hi, I'm Helge Pedersen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 